0: back to Nina's Digest. Today I'm going to talk about chapter six of The Eating Instinct by Virginia Sol Smith. This chapter is called Bypassing Hunger. So this chapter follows a woman named Gina who is identified as a quote-unquote after in the world of weight loss surgery. So she is one year out from gastric bypass surgery and Virginia joins her as she meets with her dietitian. So the RD um, is given the name Ramona in this chapter, and she's described as being a tall, thin woman dressed in various shades of brown. She, Gina tells Virginia that Ramona, the RD, is the one that everyone in her support group is all afraid of. She is described as not smiling, and she types away on her computer as Gina details everything that she eats in a day. When she shares that she's had two alcoholic drinks in the past month, Ramona appears to show disapproval, and <clears throat> Gina tells Virginia that she eats a small square of dark chocolate at night because she wants to feel like a human, is how she describes it. But she says that Ramona probably doesn't need to know that, so she just keeps it to herself. And this makes me so sad, but I fully understand it. It's, it's just... I don't, I don't know how we can expect to have an impact on any of our patients' lives if we make them feel so uncomfortable being honest with us that we aren't even getting an accurate picture of their lives or their eating habits. And that's what happens when you sort of like verbally or nonverbally shame somebody when they tell you truthfully what they've been eating and drinking. We can't expect them then to go forward and continue telling us actually what they ate. They're going to make stuff up and then we can't help them. And then also on the list of things that Gina decided she was not going to tell Ramona about was a muflata sandwich that she ate on a trip to New Orleans a few months ago. So this is a problem and it's something that, you know, it's not unique to this interaction with a patient and a dietitian. It's something that I have been hearing about all throughout school is that patients will often lie, whether it's on purpose or subconscious, because they don't, they don't wanna give you a, f- a full picture of what they've been eating and why would they when food has been made to, food has been used to shame people and people's eating habits have just been scrutinized by a number of different people, but you know in the context of seeing a dietitian I can understand exactly why somebody would um, not be truthful about what they've been eating. So this dietitian then goes on and she continues scrutinizing Gina's food log and she at one point mentions the fact that she, she wants to discuss the fact that Gina uses blue apron meals, like the, you know, the meal kits that come with everything that you need and a recipe to put it all together. Um, she says, so you're busy, you work a lot, right? That's why you use those blue apron meals. And Gina acknowledges that she's busy but um, you know she doesn't really see it as a problem that she's using the, the Blue Apron meals. But then what Virginia says is that um, Ramona wants her patients to be able to cook, to shop and cook and eat all without even using something like Blue Apron and that they should be able to sort of do it all, which would include all the meal planning, all the grocery shopping and cooking everything from scratch. And I really like the Virginia writes. For all the packaged foods littering her office, it seems that Ramona wants her clients to be cooking and eating whole foods. Never mind that, as Gina gently points out, blue apron meals do require cooking. So here we've got this dietitian that is, you know, trying to push this goal onto her client of just navigating the entire everything that's available, um, the entire landscape of food, but she's also, when talking to her about her, um, her food log, you know, telling her that maybe she should only be eating two ounces of protein at a time, so it's at once so restrictive and prescriptive and down to an exact number, but then on the other hand, she's kind of giving this message of you don't need to use something like a blue apron you can do this all on your own and just and just make it um look effortless and easy which of course it's not then they talk about looking at before and after photos from gina's bariatric surgery so ramona is looking at them and um her face lights up when she's seeing the pictures and it says that she became more animated than she had been for the entire meeting so she said oh that's what gets us up in the morning which is just so messed up um she brings the photos over to the nurse's station and shows them to everyone everyone's ooing and eyeing and congratulating gina and gina says to Virginia when they go back to the car after this appointment, she says, I do look really different, and in a lot of ways I am different. But that felt like she was so happy because now she can look at me and not feel sick. So this leads into a discussion about the history of bariatric surgery. It's considered a very risky last resort for those in the morbidly obese category. It's been framed as a health-promoting intervention, even though between the years of 1995 and 2004, almost 1% of patients died within the first year post-op, and then almost 6% died within five years of the surgery. These mortality rates are very close to what medicine would typically consider to be an unacceptable level of risk for a surgical procedure. These risks have been brought down as technology and surgical Uh, techniques have improved, and the popularity of getting bariatric surgery is on the rise. But the reality is that nobody currently can provide evidence related to the long-term impacts of these surgeries because no no good studies exist that have followed cohorts for more than just a few years. Um, Some... Do exist, but attrition or dropout rates are so high that it's become really hard to draw any reliable conclusions and to really be able to say, yes, this is health promoting, this will lead to a longer health span, this will lead to a longer, healthier, happier life. We don't have that data. Deb Burgard, who is a psychologist in California and who specializes in eating disorder treatment talks about bariatric surgery and she's quoted as saying bariatric surgeons are prescribing for fat people what we diagnose as eating disordered in thin people she is an activist and a co-founder of the health at every size movement um and she says that these these doctors don't understand the trauma that's inflicted on people that live in larger bodies and that they're not thinking about the role that they're playing in that trauma. They see a fat body and they take that as proof of someone that has an out-of-control appetite, something that needs to be, you know, brought under control. And the solution then is seen as just trying to eliminate their hunger, trying to change their biology through this surgery And then the question is posed, but why would never experiencing hunger be a good thing? So this leads into a discussion about the beliefs that our society holds and actually beliefs that go all the way back to the Bible, to the seven deadly sins, that fatness happens because people are gluttonous and slothful and they don't have self-control or willpower around food. But what we know through the research is that this is not true. There are some obese people who eat compulsively and maybe ha- are, have been diagnosed with binge eating disorder, but there are also people in thin bodies who eat compulsively and who are diagnosed with binge eating disorder, and actually the numbers are not so different. So, The statistics that Virginia cites are that only 3.5% of women and 2% of men are diagnosed with binge eating disorder, but 68.8% of Americans are in the overweight or obese category. Gina then is quoted in this chapter, the the patient who received the bariatric surgery. She's She then discusses the fact that every time she's ever lost weight on a diet, she's gained it back. She says every single time it's happened. And What Virginia notes is that she's not alone and this is absolutely correct so um, the New York Times actually reported on this that um, weight watchers you know weight Watchers builds into their um, their business model the fact that customers will fail at the diet that's built into the business model because it is a given it is an absolute truth that (laughs) diets do not work and so dr sharma is quoted in this chapter she explains how diets impact our bodies um so she talks about how when you restrict your food intake you end up going against your own biology your body realizes that it's spending more calories than it's taking in through food and in turn it employs a series of defense mechanisms for example conserving energy by slowing down your metabolism producing more ghrelin to make you feel hungrier and even um changes will start to happen in the makeup of your gut bacteria so that more hunger signals get sent to your brain. And that's because maintaining our fat stores and our weight are essential for our survival. Our bodies want to maintain a certain weight at almost any cost and whether that return to a higher weight happens in five months or five years varies person to person and diet to diet but it almost always happens and then that weight cycling is able to continue. instead, we've been repeatedly sold on this idea that weight loss and weight maintenance are just simply about willpower and self-control. And when we look at the the research, 75% of Americans have cited willpower as one of their biggest barriers to weight loss. And uh, nearly 60% of Americans think that it's individual responsibility to lose weight and that and most of us are you know sure that diet and exercise are the best way to do that even though uh, more than half of people who have tried to lose weight report that they've had to repeat that process at least five times but usually more over the course of their life in order to try to reduce their weight and actually a fifth of obese people state that they have tried and failed at diets upwards of 20 times. But when I hear this, you know, this conversation around willpower, what I what comes to mind is somebody who actually has an eating disorder, somebody particularly with anorexia nervosa because if you do truly have the quote-unquote willpower to eat less than your body is telling you to, then you are you know, very likely to potentially be eligible to receive that diagnosis. But when I hear this discussion around willpower, what comes to mind is somebody who could be diagnosed with anorexia nervosa because someone who is successfully able to ignore their hunger cues and to deprive their bodies of the amount of food that they want to eat for a considerable period of time, is somebody that could potentially fall into that category. And then another point made in this chapter is related to what happened with the weight classifications in June of 1998. This is super interesting. You know, people are always talking about how Americans have become so overweight and we have an obesity crisis and blah, blah, blah. The National Institutes of Health Obesity Task Force lowered the cutoff points for the BMI categories, and so, what that meant was overnight, almost 30 million Americans were placed in the overweight category due to that change in weight classification. And Linda Bacon <clears throat> correlates this shift to the marketing of two weight loss drugs that were sold by some major pharmaceutical companies. I don't know about that, but it is an interesting component to this chapter. And These next couple points I'm going to make are going to involve Lindo Bacon and I just want to acknowledge that she recently has some members of the Health at Every Size and the Fat Liberation communities have been holding her accountable for some repeated harm that she's inflicted on these communities and what's happened has really placed a lot of emotional labor on some members of the fat liberation and health at every size communities, and I just wanna acknowledge that first. And Linda Bacon is you know, far from the only person to have these discussions, to, she didn't start these discussions, but she is cited in this chapter as discussing the, the fact that the effects of weight stigma are not taken into account when we look at fat bodies and whether or not they can be healthy and for example she talks about the fact that healthcare providers overall spend less time with obese patients they offer them less education and they have even admitted to liking their fat patients less this distaste this you know which is weight stigma experienced in one specific form those patients seek medical care less often because they are you know, aware of the fact that they're being shamed, whether it's implicitly or explicitly, for their weight. One of Lindo's favorite analogies is the fact that yellow teeth are common among people with lung cancer, but that doesn't mean that the yellow teeth caused the lung cancer. What it means is that both of these things coexist together they're correlated but one does not cause the other that both things can happen when you smoke cigarettes you can get lung cancer and you can have yellow teeth so this leads into the discussion of excess body weight which it's argued that isn't we actually don't have the data to show that it can cause all of the health problems that are often associated with it so we we know from Research from epidemiological research that higher body weight coexists with conditions like diabetes and heart disease and sleep apnea. But you know, going back to that analogy, like just like having your teeth bleached isn't going to improve your lung health. We don't have any data that really shows that significant weight loss sustained over a long period of time, which, as we've established, is, Nearly impossible is not the most logical tool to employ if you want to see um, changes in your health that are measurable, like lowering blood sugar levels or bringing down your blood pressure. Now, you might be thinking that there is evidence that some, you know, a small amount of weight loss is correlated with improvements in some of these conditions, but that goes back to the fact that it's difficult to attribute what you know to figure out what are those changes attributed to are those changes are those health benefits that we're seeing the the result of somebody having a smaller body or could they be potentially the result of changes in lifestyle like you know drinking more water sleeping more reducing stress moving their bodies more you know spending less time sitting watching television and so what is made really clear in this chapter is that nobody is saying that everyone who's fat is healthy. No one is saying that everyone who's thin is healthy. What, what, you know, what's, being, what's being argued is that the relationship between weight and health is actually not all that helpful to look at. And from my perspective, one of the top reasons for this is that our weight is really not as much within our control as we might like to think that it is. So to wrap this chapter up, there's a discussion around the food addiction theory. And does food addiction exist? Does it not exist? I would argue that from everything that I've learned, everything that I've read thus far, food addiction does not exist. But... Um, and what's important to acknowledge is that, yeah, of course, we're, we're wired neurologically to want food and to like food. That's literally how we've survived, you know, <laughs> for thousands of years is feeling, getting reward feelings when we eat. Because otherwise, what would our um, drive be to eat if it didn't taste good and if we didn't get those feel-good chemicals that were released when, when we eat? And we also, as humans, we connect food to love. Um, oftentimes some of our first experiences with food are intertwined with love. You know, we've got our parents holding us, our parents feeding us, and we're experiencing family or, and or friends with food. But then we're thrust into this culture that ends up pathologizing this idea that food and love are one and the same. Um, and we're told that you know, you're supposed to eat to live, not live to eat. And that and that sort of extracting too much comfort or pleasure from food is actually a sign of addiction, which I don't agree with. And to close out that discussion, something that Virginia says is, perhaps if we stopped shaming people for loving to eat, they could love food in a less complicated and frenetic way. And that just about sums up my entire ideology around nutrition. I, I love that and I agree with her. And lastly, I was so glad to see... I'm sorry, my cat is trying to get into the room that I'm recording in, so you can probably hear her. Virginia acknowledges at the end of this chapter, she talks about the health in every size approach and she, you know, acknowledges that it it's kinder, it's gentler, it's safer than dieting. But... She acknowledges that it is, that doesn't mean that it's necessarily easier because truly, you know, embracing a health at every size approach to life means completely abandoning this idea that someday you'll be thin or that you are striving for a smaller body. And that is a, you know, a tough ask and maybe even impossible seeming for. A lot of people who don't feel safe in the body size that they're in and who've been conditioned since they were really young to want to change it. Gina, the bariatric surgery patient that we've been talking about this chapter, Talks about the fact that when she was 19 she was walking out of a gas station with a bag of candy and a guy leaned out of his car to yell fat bastard at her and she says that she wasn't actually totally ashamed of her body by that point she knew that she was fat but <clears throat> she says she didn't realize that she was heckled by strangers fat until that moment and when she told her family and friends that it happened she says that they all were not surprised so all of this, you know, that's just one example of stigmatization and harassment. Um, for those reasons, it can feel really unsafe for somebody in a larger body to embrace a health at every size approach to, to life, to health. So, um, you know, it's one thing for somebody in my body size, a thin body to strive to live my life in a way that doesn't place a focus on my body, that is a privilege because for a lot of people that does not feel safe and it does not feel comfortable. Um, So that's it for this week. Have a good week everybody and I'll talk to you later, bye.